1: Looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
2: If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up now to. The Gospel of John, John chapter 7. I titled this message today, it's an easy title to come up with because of the content of the material that we're going to learn and study. I titled it, What Really Satisfies Your Thirst? And it's a simple question, but you know they really work hard to show you what satisfies your thirst, particularly through the Super Bowl game as they'll try to put up all those alcohol commercials up there. And yet we already know that that does not satisfy your thirst. In fact, it actually complicates your life and destroys it. And he can also watch almost any other television commercial and they're going to parade a lot of things out in front of you thinking that you have this particular thirst, whatever it might be, for power, possessions position, whatever it might be, and that will quench whatever thirst that you have. Unfortunately, those objects uh, eventually wear out or some some new technology comes on board, and you have to get that, and that doesn't satisfy your thirst. Well, those of you who know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you already know it's not what satisfies your thirst, but it's who satisfies your thirst, and that's because you probably have gone through this chapter before. Now, if you look at this chapter, John John chapter 7, you're going to find that it is a long chapter, and I'm going to do something I haven't done in a long time is I'm going to try to cover one chapter on one Sunday knowing we have communion and baptism and to make sure that you get home at an appropriate time. The reason I'm doing this on one Sunday is because sometimes you can take sections of the life of Christ through the Gospel of John and you can preach on that one section. But the entire chapter revolves around him being the water of life. And so to do that, we really have to understand the entire chapter, but it's not going to be difficult to do that. In fact, I like to look at this chapter and I look at it as probably a, probably a, a, a sea of, of, of a desert that is, that is out there. But in the middle of it is a little oasis. And that oasis is where Jesus Christ claims that he is the water of life. And so I want to kind of explain a little bit about what's going around on the outside edges. I read some statistics recently that about one billion people a day are thirsty. I don't mean thirsty like you finished working in the yard and you want to get some water. I'm talking about people that are nearly dying because of not getting enough water. I read recently about an African-American, excuse me, an African teenager that was in Africa. And he tells the story how that for his family, he loads up the jugs on the side of his donkey and he goes to the well and then he brings the water back. Now, for some of us, that's no big deal. Just go down the road, get the water, bring it back, go on to other things. It took him all day to get to where the well was, load up those beakers of water, and bring them back. And he did that day after 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 day. day. That was his life just to provide for his family. When you got thinking about that, we're not going to talk about what's going to satisfy your thirst in the physical world. We're going to talk about what satisfies your thirst in the inner man. If I look at the world today, there's probably between two and three billion people, maybe more, of course, that don't know Christ as their Savior. And so we would say they too are thirsty and they need to know Jesus Christ is their Savior. But the un- the neat thing is, is that they're not so far away from the well of water that will give them and quench that thirst, Jesus Christ. He's right there before them. And I look at our beautiful island that is surrounded by immeasurable amount of water. Now, I know we cannot drink that salt water, but we have water, water everywhere. But our people in this island still need the water of life and how important that is. For just a moment I'd like to kind of go up a little higher over chapter 7 and give you a little bit of what we might call a bird's eye view of the gospel of John so you can see we're talking about the life of Christ. In John chapter 1 and even the very first verse it talks about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and we're talking about Christ. So he was before the beginning, he was at the beginning meaning creation and so right at the very beginning of John we see him as he pervades all eternity. And then in chapters 1 through chapter 6 you see really what we might call the first two and a half years of his life. And so we're kind of going through that and we finish that, when we finish John chapter 6. Now today we're beginning a new section, 7 through 10, that's going to talk about the last six months of his life. So you're seeing how that the life of Christ is kind of being condensed here. And then when we get to the end, chapter 11 through 21, we're going to look at the last week of his life. So it starts out with a longer bite of his life, a shorter bite of his life, and then the last week of his life. And so today we're going to look a little bit about his life and how it feeds into the water of life. It's also interesting too, if you look at John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, John chapter 6 was all about him being the bread of life. John chapter 7, he's the water of life. And in both of these, he's talking about that if you come to him and you drink and you eat, you will never thirst again and you'll never hunger again when you come to Christ. It's also interesting when you go John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 and you move into John chapter 8, you're going to see the attitudes about Christ intensify. The people who love Christ are going to love him even more and more deeply and the sacrifice that they're making to know him is greater. But then those who are questioning are now moving into a real hatred for Christ and they're moving in the direction where they want to kill Christ. So the hatred even intensifies as well. So we're beginning to see how it's moving from this confusion into a time of, of real hatred for Christ wanting to kill him. So I'm, I'm glad that you're here today. So let's launch right into this study because I want to cover for you in this passage four things that in this area that I think people are looking for to satisfy their thirst that will not satisfy their thirst, and the only way is the one correct way, and we'll cover that today. So let's begin at John chapter 7, and let me read to you verse 1, and it starts out by saying this, after these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, obviously, there were some salt and pepper that were really revved up to kill him, but the attitude was growing to try to destroy Christ. But here's what is interesting. He starts his ministry lower in southern Israel, near Jerusalem, and he moves up to Galilee, and he's in northern Israel. Now, that's important because you're going to see him begin to move back toward southern Israel to Jerusalem in just a few minutes. So he's walking up there doing his ministry, but he's soon to head towards southern Israel, which would be where Judea is. Now, verse 2, it says... Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. Now, most of you may not be aware of what does it mean, a Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, etc. I'll explain that in a moment. But here's what's so interesting is, is that when Jesus wants to teach a lesson, a truth that's going to last forever, he will often use temporal things that are very visible and knowing for the people that are right there. If you remember, they were hungry, so he fed them with bread. And then he said, I'm the bread of life, chapter 6. Now he's going to talk about water and him being the water of life. Now you say, what's this feast of booze? Why is that so much about water? Well, first of all, let's talk about the Feast of Booths. Out of the three feasts that the Jews would celebrate, according to Josephus, he said that this was probably the most popular feast of all. The reason being is this one was filled with a lot more celebration. Passover was some celebration, but a lot of it was to remember what happened when they were, of course, going over the Passover time, moving from Egypt and then into the wilderness and hopefully into the the promised land that eventually came. So it was a very celebratory time. They did a lot of feasting. A lot of it dealt with, oddly enough, with water and light because that symbolized what happened to them while they were in the wilderness. Now, this feast was something that they did celebrate. It was part of the Old Testament. Now, when they did this, they had the feast, And the water part of it was interesting because if you remember when they were in the wilderness, they were very, very thirsty. They were crying out for water as they soon got into the wilderness. And the Lord then said to Moses that all you need to do is strike the rock the first time and speak to it the second time. And out of it gushed rivers, I mean like an avalanche of water that would come down. Those of you that remember many years ago when we were here, when we had the big flood up on top of the Pali, the water raced down the poly, the new Uwana stream, a huge log got caught in our stream and the water for eight to nine hours, rooster tail, thousands and tens of thousands of gallons spilled over in our parking lot and flooded our entire place here. That would be like Moses speaking one time in a dry desert to this rock and all of a sudden it gushed forth water. They would remember that. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a lot like that. Included in the Feast of Tabernacles, now we're at thousands of years after they're in the wilderness, they remembered as a remembrance... To their forefathers, that when they were in the wilderness, they lived in what we would call tents. Now, we're not talking so much about the Walmart tent that we'll do at our family Ohana camp in February. We're talking about little lean tos that they would make out of branches, little booths, like when you go to the, the mall or maybe the marketplace, you'll see little booths there at the flea market. And so they would live in these little booths. Well, they're long past that now. Jerusalem is a big place. The feast is going on. In fact, it says it was a great feast. So they often would put these little handmade booths there in the square. Some of them would put them up on the roof of their house now. And for eight days, seven days would be the time. And then the eighth day, of course, would be this big Sabbath. So Sabbath on both ends. And they would celebrate this time. There would be different candlesticks to represent the fire that happened. If you remember, the children of Israel were led in the wilderness. So this feast of time was tremendous. In addition to that, once a day the priest then would go to the pool of siloam not bethesda but pool of siloam they would get out a bucket of water they would go into the temple area as the feast of tabernacles booth was going on and they would pour a bucket of water on the particular altar there at that time again symbolizing living in the wilderness with the booths the lights representing the fire that would lead them the water be how that god provided for them and it was a big time to celebrate now again The Lord is doing this so that when he begins to teach about him being the water of life and if you come to him to drink, you'll never thirst again. He's using that as a remembrance that he is that ultimate source of satisfaction and has the quenchability of the thirst that these folks have. Now there's a lot more there. We look forward to the time of celebrating the feast of booze during the millennial period of time. Now to do that, you might want to jot down some notes. If not, you can just kind of follow along here in the Bible because what you're going to see are the four things that sometimes people look to to maybe satisfy the needs that they might have in their life. And of course, we know that those things often do not satisfy our needs and they cannot satisfy our needs. So let's look at number 1. Shall we? The first one is human strategies. They cannot satisfy our needs. Let me show you how that the brothers got involved in trying to solve some of their own problems to maybe have their needs satisfied. So let's jump back into the text again, starting in verse three. It says, therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. Kind of an interesting thing the disciples are saying as their brothers. We remember how the stories of you being born in Bethlehem and how that there was angels and singing and people came to give gifts to mom and all of that. We also seen the big miracles you've done earlier. Now we want to see more, so get on down there and really show off who you are. That doesn't mean they believed in him. It says, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so they were really trying to come up with some way to satisfy their need, perhaps to say, I know the man. I'm, I'm, I'm the brother. I'm the relative. I know this guy, and he's a great miracle worker. And maybe that was their need to be to be known and so their solution would be more on a political nature now when i mean political i don't mean like a government where you're voting but often you know enough now when you hear the words they're just playing politics with this event and each one of these candidates are doing the things you also know about politics because if you work in an office you've heard the term office politics haven't you some of you perhaps in a family you've heard of family politics you don't want to do something that'll rock the boat so you kind of have to manipulate and you got some people that are intimidating you You've got family politics I'm grateful in this church we don't have church politics that I am aware of, but I know that it always is that perception that it could happen. Maybe some of you are here today because you got fed up with politics in another church. Well, these brothers are trying to play politics a little bit. Hey, Jesus, you need a better ad campaign. You go over there and you now do some great miracles. I'd like to add this thought. I really believe the brothers were, in a way, they had a sincere heart. They wanted Jesus to make himself known so more people would listen to him and perhaps even be able to give him a platform upon which to stand and declare his lordship, that he is God. And I think sometimes people in our life, whether they're family members or friends, they come alongside us and they give us a lot of great advice. But at times we have to take that advice and we need to run that advice through the grid of scripture to make sure is that biblical. Secondly, we need to run it through the grid of prayer to really sense the Holy Spirit prompting us and leading us and guiding us through all of this because even well family members can give us a lot of advice and not necessarily do we have to immediately jump to that advice I think it's wise to listen and give them an audience but again God's advice God's word God's spirit trumps whatever family might give you or at least will affirm whatever advice that your family might be able to give to you let's go back to the passage here so you might want to say that uh, common sense is overruled by spiritual sense So then Jesus goes a little bit further here and he said, you know, my time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. In other words, this is not yet the time for me to do these great miracles yet. Your time, you can do whatever you want. Your time is opportune it's up to you. But for me, I've got to wait until it's my time. Now that phrase, I'd like to encourage you to do your own personal Bible study. Look at that phrase when he says, my time has not yet come, and variations of it, and see how many times that the Lord uses that phrase, my time is still not yet. And here's what I say to that. You know, when you have this big um, political solution that we think that's out there, and it's not, and it's not going to work for us. Perhaps we have to realize that in God's timing that it's the strategy that we use. Lord, what is your timing? It still may be right, but the timing may be not right. It could be God's will, but the timing isn't there. Let me make a practical suggestion. Some of you that are maybe anticipating getting married, it may very well be God's will that you marry this guy or this gal. They're walking with the Lord. You guys seem to really know how to make each other tick and tick. So there's a lot of that synergy going on. But now what you want to do is to sense, is this the right time? Oh, we can get married any time we want. We have freedom in America. We're mature adults. But now, is it God's timing? Now, I can't tell you what that might be, but it goes back to, again, God's will and God's timing need to align. And so it was God's will that he would go to Jerusalem, and we'll see that in a moment. But at that very moment, it wasn't God's timing yet. So look at the things that are happening in your life to really sense, is this God's will first? And then is God's will in this timing factor? I like this phrase, love can wait, but lust can't. So be very careful on the decisions that we make that we don't make it one day sooner or one day later than he wants us to do it. But based again, is it his will? Let's go back to the passage again. So he says here, so Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. So what do you do when you want to find out is the strategy of the Lord or not? Well, first of all, go back into his word. His will will be his word. His timing will be doors that will open, doors that will close, the prompting of your heart and the confirmation of others. And then secondly, how does God work against these strategies? is that he will always, here it is, he will always, listen again, speak truth. And he will testify that which is true. And often when he does, he will be convicting us because in this context of scripture, he is speaking against evil and sin in our life. So sometimes when you're trying to strategize and get your needs met, it wouldn't surprise me because it happens to me that in the midst of God's will, God's timing, is also going to be God's conviction So now what's happening to satisfy my needs is am I doing this based upon my own motives or is it for the Lord? Am I doing and making a decision while I'm still regarding iniquity in my heart? Am I still doing something that is going to hinder me from having the complete free flow of the Spirit of God using the Word of God to guide the child of God for the glory of God? So you have to go back to that. He will speak to those issues. Will, timing, and also motives. And it'll come back to His word here. So the first is, look at it from scripture. He'll satisfy you through the word of God. And may I say this? Watch this now. His scripture will always point to, not what, but to whom? To Jesus Christ. Will Christ be glorified in meeting that particular need in your life? All right, that's number one. Let's go to the second one because there's many in this passage, but that might help you. And I think it might uh, be good for all of us. The second one deals a little bit more than just strategies. It's gonna deal with um, something that... um, we would call speculation. They're moving in a direction where they're starting to speculate on what happens next. So let's go to the next part of the passage. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There is much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. So what happens now when you have an issue in your life that's being unmet, a need, and you're thirsty to have that need met. We begin to look at the problem that we have and we begin to speculate. I wonder why this is happening and who is this here for and it shouldn't have happened to me. And So now we begin to, what I call, philosophize on all of this. We begin to try to solve the problem man's way. Look at it this way. Strategies talk about how we're going to do it and speculations helps answer why we're going to do it. And so now you want to ask some of the deeper motives of what you're doing. I couldn't help but think about the devastation in the northeast part of the United States. And those of you, how many of you know someone who has been touched in some measure by Sandy and that horrific storm? How many of you know someone like Would you raise your hand? They're all out here. Now, I'm saying that to say this. It would not surprise me that there are thousands of people that are trying to speculate, why is this happening? Is it global warming Is the government not taking care of us? Why did we move here, honey? Why did you take this job? Why would God let this? the stars not line up right? They're speculating all of this because their needs aren't being met. They've got problems and they want to have their physical needs met because that's where their thirst is. Now, I'm not against having physical needs met. I'm going to eat because my body tells me I'm hungry. I realize that. But the deepest needs we have are the inner needs. And so sometimes we philosophize over all of this. So look what Jesus says about that. Let's go back to the passage again. It says, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself went up, but not publicly, as if in secret. Some of you might be scratching your head because you might be looking at verse 9 and it tells them, you go to the feast. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not fully come, but you go on up, and then two verses later, he ends up going to the feast. So you're thinking, wait, did he just lie to them? Well, those of you that have a new international version, you're going to find the phrase that says here that you're to go up because he's not going to go yet up. And I think that's probably the better way to interpret this passage, although the Greek scholars are divided on both, but the context still doesn't change any. And here's what we're saying. When Jesus Christ wants to do something, he says, I'm not going to do it yet, but I'm going to do it in my timing. It all goes back to the timing of the Lord. So that's that passage, in case you're struggling with that in some measure. that I want you to know that he wasn't giving duplicity, he wasn't giving a dual answer here. He just says, at this time, you guys go, I'm going to go later. And he did go. In fact, he went halfway through this wonderful feast and he showed up and he started teaching. Let's go back to the passage here. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? If you will, circle the word Jews in your Bible because it's not just talking about Jews, people here when it said that in scripture it's talking about jewish leaders so this is not just talking about any jew it's talking about those that have positions of influence and power and you'll see that in a moment goes on to say go back to the passage So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds. Now, this crowd was mostly filled with Jewish people, but there could be some looky-loos of the Gentile crowd that was saying, what's going on here? There's a lot of commotion going on. People are really grumbling. They kind of want to go where the action is to find out, is there a riot that's going to happen? So you have two different groups. So they're all questioning what is happening here. But that group says something very interesting. That group begins to speculate. Well, he's a good man, so he could take care of our needs. Let me pause for a moment. Jesus was good. We're not going to say anything less than that. But I will say that Jesus was more than good. He was perfect. And he was perfect because he was God. So they had part of that right. He's a good man, but he wasn't, they weren't totally right. He was more than just a good man. We have a lot of good people in our society, but none of them are God. Jesus was good because he was God, and he was more than good because he was God. He was perfect. Now go back. It also says this. Besides being a good man, others are saying no. On the contrary, he leads people astray or he's a deceiver. Now that's what you want to mark because the crowd is now beginning as we talk about the intensification and happening, they're now dividing up and they're saying, hmm, Jesus is a pretty good guy. Leave him alone. Don't be so upset over this thing. The others are saying he's a deceiver. And it's this group that kept the greater group we might call liquored up and charged up because it was this group that eventually convinced the other group that said he was a good man and got the whole crowd to come together and say, crucify him and crucify him. And just about six to nine months later, And so I want you to know the crowd is now beginning to divide up over this. Go back to the passage again. So it says here, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Again, that's because the Jewish leaders could put the kibosh on this and they didn't want to have them hammer the crowd. So the crowd was kind of whispering about this among themselves because they didn't want the Jews to come down on them. Verse 14. But when it was in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. That's because he left upper Galilee and he went down and he went into the temple and he began to teach. And the Jew, Jewish leaders, they were astounded. And they were saying, how has this man become learned having never been educated? Well, we know why, don't we? Because he's God. He's the one who wrote the book. So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. You know, Jesus loves that phrase and he keeps having to remind them. I went through scripture and I counted how many times it said he was sent from God the Father. I found it little as, as little as 38 times Jesus said, I am sent of God. When it says, I speak for God or I speak God's word, that is found no less than ten times. He's sent from God because he is God. He speaks for God because he is God. And that's what is saying. I am God. And that's the whole theme of the book is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he says, I'm the one who can deal with that. And I think that's important. Let's go down to the next verse. Verse 17. So he says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Now look up here for just a moment. When we have this philosophy out here and we're speculating to get our needs met, and so now we're saying, well, maybe there is something in Christianity. It seems like other religions, the people that are in them, they get converted out of those religions and they come to Christ. What we don't find are true, blood-bought, born-again believers in Christ who convert out of authentic Christianity after they've trusted Christ into other religions, isms, or spasms. They may not always live like Christ, but that doesn't mean they embrace a completely different value system and they go after that if they truly trusted Christ. So they're saying, hmm, there may be some truth in this. So they're having some speculation on this philosophy. Jesus, in this chapter, gives us two responses when we're faced with those dilemmas. Now, when you see these responses, you're going to scratch your head and you're going to say, I don't see how this thing works. And I will only say to you, in as much aloha and love that I can, if you maintain that, I don't see how that works, I'm not going to do it you'll be not much different than the crowd that said, he's a good man, or I still need to study more, etc. Because here was his answer when you finally came up and you were confronted with Christ. Verse 17 says this.
1: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible.